strong voices. It's not just about one state, it's not just about one community, it's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language. I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialized logics are inscribed upon our bodies and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we've got to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Hello, good morning and welcome to Strong Voices. We're coming to you from the Calm Radio Studios here in uh, in Bunvala Springs here in our undercountry in Central Australia. We're also, of course, uh, broadcasting across the country on Vast Channel 911. And we're also coming to you online via the uh, Calm website at karma.com.au. Uh, today is, of course, the start of the working week. It's Monday, the 16th of September, 2019. I'm your host, Kyle Dowling, and you'll have my company up until uh, 12 o'clock today. It's great to be back with you. Uh, coming up on Strong Voices today, uh, we're going to be hearing about uh, what was marking the start of the Coalition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Peak Organisations, uh, leading engagements with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people on the next phase of the Closing the Gap, uh, which is a, a national policy a national policy aimed at improving the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. The uh, Coalition of Peaks is actually working with the Council of Australian Governments, known as COAG, to develop a new national agreement that's going to set out efforts over the next 10 years to help close those gaps. We're also going to be hearing, uh, heading down to Tasmania to hear about uh, Aboriginal people who are actually accusing the Hodgman Liberal Government of cultural genocide following the introduction of a bill which will penalise the usage of unofficial place names in the state. Also, we're going to be hearing from uh, Melbourne-based academic Lynn Kelly, author of two important books, uh, Memory Code and Memory Craft, which look at uh, the best memory techniques that humans have ever devised. We're also, of course, going to be hearing the latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from across the country. But first, we are going to head to a track and then we'll be right back. You're listening to Strong Voices on Calm Radio. (laughs) That's right. You're listening to Strong Voices here on Calm Radio. We're going to be heading into our first story of the show. Uh, Last week saw surveys being sent out to hundreds of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community-controlled organisations and their networks, which is looking to get responses from uh, individuals. The survey was open to everyone and it's actually going to be closing on uh, the 25th of October. This is all a part of the closing in the gap process and how the uh, Coalition of Peak Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organisations are looking to you know, make that difference in terms of closing the gap and working alongside the Council of Australian Government's uh, COAG and this is all a part of a new national agreement. Uh, Karma's Damon Williams had an opportunity to sit down and speak with uh, John Patterson, uh, the CEO of AMSET, to talk about this uh, new national agreement. Good news is, is that we've got agreements from all state, territory uh, premiers and, and chief ministers. They've all signed on to the National Partnership Agreement. We've uh, had our second second uh, joint council on closing the gap. 
Um, and uh, so, and we had to work out the, um, at those first two meetings, those first two meetings, about some of the processes and structures and governance arrangements at the national jurisdictional level. We've got that uh, bedded down now. So our next task is um, beginning middle of September, within the next couple of weeks, um, or early as next week, I think. There'll be uh, jurisdictional consultations from right around the country. So um, we'll have representatives from the Commonwealth Government, uh, State Territory Government, the uh, Coalition of Peaks, representatives undertaking regional consultations or community consultations within their respective regions. Um, and that, uh, that that timing is up until the end of October. In the Northern Territory, we're proposing to have a minimum of six regional meetings, and they're yet to be uh, determined. We're going through that process now and planning that, and as soon as we bed those uh, regional uh, locations down, we'll inform the, uh, the public about those consultations. Um, there is also via Nacho. Nacho have, um, in this uh, release of information, have provided uh, a survey for everyone to access and participate in that survey. Around um, well, it's an opportunity, another another um, another um, opportunity for individuals that may not be able to get to those meetings to have their say via this survey which uh, closes on the October 25 at 5pm 2019 so plenty of time there for individuals to get access to the, to the survey that information is being disseminated as we speak avenue for uh, individuals and communities or people to have their say so but keep a. Uh, um, I'll obviously uh, be attending as many of those consultations as possible with uh, those government officials and our Aboriginal Peak leaders in the Northern Territory to hear uh, firsthand from our community representatives around some of those targeted areas in this new uh, phase of closing the gap. So really talking to the grassroots, uh, at the grassroots level of trying to solve uh, some of these, uh, trying to close some of these gaps. Yeah, look, it's an opportunity to uh, listen, listen to what community uh, members and representatives are saying and organisations and individuals about some of those priority areas that they want, um, you know, service providers and, and funders to focus on for the next decade. So this this plan, the new uh, Close the Gap Refresh plan um, is for a 10-year period. And so we want to make sure that we're actually listening and enabling Aboriginal people to have a say in this process as 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 close as possible to, to their respective communities. And that's why, I've, you know, we're, we're going to all efforts to try and get out to as many communities as possible, or regions anyway, at this stage. And so what kind of things are you hoping to um, the, the national agreement will achieve? And when I mean, uh, um, you know, in the way of uh, being able to, you know, design, Im- implement or mentoring and, and all that kind of stuff, what kind of things, what other things that are, are important in this agreement? Look, our main messages have been that we've got to, um, we've got to provide opportunities uh, for Aboriginal people to have active participation in the design, development, implementation of services and programs 
monitoring to see how effectively they're going and, and to take you know reviews wherever um, the reviews need to take place to see whether we're actually hitting the mark or not. Uh, whether we can strengthen, you know, strategies and, and implementation processes. So it's about building Aboriginal capacity. Um, there's uh, support at the national level that, uh, you know, they want Aboriginal community organisations to be participating, those that have capacity and the, uh, um, the, the spread um, in terms of service delivery to participate in those processes. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the key message is, is enabling and allowing Aboriginal people to have a say about, you know, some of the uh, challenging issues that they face on a day-to-day -day basis, you know. And, look, I've been around the, the Northern Territory a whole number of meetings now. And, for example, one of the main areas where... Um, community mob want uh, more investment and uh, work done, and that's housing, you know. If we can fix the backlog and overcrowding of housing issue, then we'll eliminate a fair amount of, um, you know, health-related preventable illnesses that stem from overcrowding or lack of housing, lack of poor water quality. Um, so we've got to ensure that we get the balance right and the, you know that the plan needs to be flexible as well so that you know one issue may not be the same as a or a priority may not be the same as another state or territory you know they, they will vary from around the country that's why we need flexibility we need the appropriate resourcing and you know communities engaging and participating in these processes and the aboriginal leadership providing the appropriate leadership in their respective communities like you said, um, you know, one of the big issues uh, that a lot of communities face, um, especially here in the Treasury, like you said, you know, for is his housing. And, and like you said, it was, you know, the stems that affects health, mental illness, or, you know, everything that comes with that as well. What are some of the other ones? I mean, all the targets you know all the gaps that are that are mm. plaguing our people are important yeah. to take care of but which ones um like you said the housing or which other ones are you really wanting to focus on sure look uh we're going to allow that process to unfold through these regional consultations uh we don't want to come up with a wish list and we then can't address any of them so we've got to be a bit smart and strategic about how we go about addressing those uh priority areas so that'll be a discussion, you know, there's lots of discussions to be had in negotiations between the Aboriginal Coalition of Peaks and, and governments at the highest level. Um, you know, uh, one of the other major issues uh, that are affecting right across the nation is the high incarceration rates of Aboriginal people in prisons, you know. Uh, we've got to get those numbers down. They're peaking up around about the high 90, 90% of those that are in prisons are of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander descent, you know, and when it comes to, I just hear on the news this morning um, around the child children in detentions, you know, almost 100% of those kids are, are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander descent. So we've got to find and work smarter and get better strategies um, in place to to reduce some of those numbers in the you know that's the in, in the uh, child protection, youth justice, and adult prison uh, rates there. 
education. We've all seen, you know, that there's some positive trends that are that are coming out from uh, from education, and particularly kids graduating from uh, year 12. That's that's a good sign. Um, uh, child protection, another area. Um, we want to get kids out of home care and placed in with as many uh, Aboriginal, you know, foster care parents or kinship carers as, as possible. Uh, but, you know, the aim and the strategy should be to how do we build the capacity of our communities and our families to be stronger parents and, um, you know, so it's it's we've got to wrap, put around those wraparound programs, you know, that support parents that may need, may need the appropriate support and assistance. It's difficult. I, I totally agree. It's difficult being a parent and bringing up kids uh, in this day and age, you know, uh, particularly if you're dependent on welfare benefits. Um, you know, uh, we've got to work with those families. We've got to provide the intensive care and, and support for them. Um, take them back to the basics, you know, of um, of uh, living and uh, uh, looking after kids, um, nurturing them and caring them and hopefully uh, guiding them to, you know, a good level of education so that when they're adults, when they grow up to be adults, they, they are competitive or they, they're skilled and competitive for, for the workforce and take on some of those jobs that uh, in their respective communities that are that are currently being occupied by non-Indigenous people, you know. And, John, for those uh, wanting to get involved or um, wanting to get more information, where can they keep an eye out? Yes, look, uh, Nacho's got a, um, a uh, web page, um, and if they just punch in or, you know, go to Google searches and punch in Nacho, Coalition of Peaks, um, there's uh, uh, links to the, uh, to the appropriate... Um, information there um, we will be as uh, we've got a um, we've also got a communication strategy that'll be about to be released shortly by the national uh, I think it's the National Indigenous Media Association um, or First Nations Media Association anyway our national media uh, people are, are working on communication strategies as we speak um, we'll be flooding we'll be flooding all avenues with um, all the information that uh, community people and um, those that want to have a say in the closing of the gap process uh, hopefully you know make that make those links accessible and uh, available to them to um, provide comment and feedback this whole process uh, is we're, we're under tight time frames we're working tirelessly we're working in the best interest of our communities and our our constituents right across the country. There's um, a good representation of Aboriginal leaders at the national level that are working with uh, the Commonwealth, state, territory governments. And uh, I've got a good positive feel about this. I think this is a good start. We must just uh, keep our eye on the ball, keep focused, making sure that we're providing the communication upwards and downwards and hopefully uh, get, get the support of of our mob and keep focused on that shared vision and hopefully we'll, we'll make some inroads. On that note, uh, John Patterson, thanks very much for joining us here on Calm Radio. Thank you now. Cheers. 
That was uh, John Patterson, the CEO of AMSENT, the Aboriginal Medical Services Alliance, NT, speaking with Karma's Damien Williams. We're going to head to a breakdown and then we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Ricky Bloomfield and you're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. That's right, you're listening to Strong Voices here with me, Kyle Dowling. We're going to head into our next story now. Uh, Lynn Kelly is an Australian writer, researcher and educator. Her academic work focuses mainly on the study of the spoken word as well as the devices used by ancient and modern oral cultures from around the world. Her research shows oral cultures possess a large body of scientific knowledge on animal, animal behaviour, plant properties, the landscape natural occurrences and water sources. You studied lots of different cultures and societies uh, through the centuries uh, from the global community, not just First Nations, the Western society, and they all had their own way of doing things. But First Nations Australians certainly had a method that has served them well and it can still contribute today. Absolutely. And the same methods can be seen right around the world. The use of the landscape, the use of art as a memory device, the use of handheld devices. That's been phenomenally successful and lots of people are really interested in in how handheld devices, the way of using objects on the ground to tell stories. I've started using that to, to map out the Greek and Roman stories and it just makes it so memorable and so much more fun than the dry way we're taught. So I can see the same patterns all around the world because they match the way the brain works. What we've got here that is unique is that long, long history, but also that we've got so many cultures that have done it slightly differently but has, have the same basic methodologies. So you're getting a whole lot of slightly different implementations. If you just look at the way the artwork records, you know, in the territory, they're all recording knowledge and maps and so on, but doing it with slightly different styles, but it all works really well. We can learn so much from that. And the other thing is that the stories all have an ethical and moral underpinning, which we don't have in... Western teaching, we don't teach science as if it has an ethical side or maths or anything else. That integrated way of of knowing information is just so valuable. We talk about Indigenous cultural knowledge. Virtually since colonisation, the knowledge base of the First Nations peoples has been disregarded by Western society and uh, it's probably only in the last two or three decades at the very latest or even two decades that we're starting to see academia take on board some of the stories and uh, again when we look at the methods that the First Nations peoples used to memorise it suggests a much more intricate way of doing things without actually writing it down. Absolutely and it's to our great shame and loss that we've taken so long. What is interesting, the memory methods that I talk about, um, that we'll probably talk about in more detail, but memory palaces and art and characters and so on, uh, are known in the memory world from classical uh, Greek and Roman times. But that just gives you a basis what the First Nations song lines in particular, which are actually memory palaces, ways of memorising vast amounts of information, they not only 
can memorize something associated with each location, but they then layer it. They use that as a firm foundation and layer more and more information at higher levels of thinking, philosophy and commentary and so on, on this firm knowledge basis. And that's what I think that Western education in particular can learn a huge amount from, is laying down this really firm, rigorous information grounded in the landscape and then you've got a huge knowledge base with which to play. Western anthropologists and scientists um, would look from a very different perspective what the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples had achieved from a Western perspective. But what we have to remember is that as the oldest living culture on Earth uh, that didn't write things down, they had to do it very differently. And And to do it at the level that they did it and the fact that it survived through to this day would suggest it was at a very high level. Absolutely. And what I feel has been missing with anthropology and so on, they've looked at just the knowledge and only recently acknowledging that, but not the intellectual achievements beyond recognising the animals and plants and so on. It's a much more subtle set of lessons that we can learn. The Jajawaring people, I'm on Jajawaring country down here in Victoria, have asked me to refer to the stories and dances and ceremonies and everything as teachings. And those teachings not only include the actual factual information, but mechanisms by which they can memorise it. And we don't have these mechanisms in Western education. We could improve our ability to memorise information in any domain by learning from Indigenous cultures. Because when you don't have literacy, this is what I keep hearing, they didn't write it down. They had and still have an alternative. And that alternative is orality, oral tradition, and oral memory methods. And those alternatives, we can use the two together. We can learn so much. The song lines, and again, from a Western perspective, it was always, well, the blackfellas are singing about something. We don't really know what it means, but not even wanting to understand what it was about. Yes, and it's that lack of respect for the purpose and why they sing. Since the memory code, I've been working with a neuroscientist in Western Australia, Dr Jenny Roger, and she looks at the brain plasticity and what we've been working together on is the fact that these First Nations methods actually reflect exactly the way the brain works. So song in particular is buried right down deep in uh, the hippocampus and deep into the brain in terms of memory, which is why uh, if you get people in quite advanced stages of dementia and play familiar music, they will respond. Well, we use music to teach up to about, you know, seven or eight-year-olds at the most, and then we stop it whereas First Nations people use it right through life. So singing anything is a much more fundamental way of keeping information than writing or anything else. It's really reliable and keeps it conscious. The same is associating with place. That's the other one the neuroscience has shown is really um, natural in the human brain and therefore associating things, information with particular places in country or in the landscape, or even in the built landscape of a city, will keep that information structured, ordered, you won't lose it, and highly memorable. So these 
techniques used by First Nations people match the neuroscience exactly, which is no great surprise when you think about it. But there's more subtlety that I hadn't understood, and I'm finally learning, is the use of characters. Now, it's very hard to use a term that's acceptable, culturally sensitive. Pueblo people in America, it's Kachina, with First Nations people... uh, ancestors, the old people, lots of different terms used. So I use characters or even rapscallions but if you take abstract information and have it taught to you by a character, so the expression I get from the judge of Waring is from the old people they're lessons, they're stories we learn from, not about. And we've started using that, some colleagues and I, in schools and it's made a massive difference to have students keep characters going and bringing abstract math table spelling anything to life in this way obviously in the wider non-indigenous community it's hard to relate to aboriginal and torres strait islander peoples having any sort of intellectual capacity that might resonate today and that's what we've got to change and the response i'm getting to memory craft and to the memory code is very much that we want to learn from and I've been talking to curriculum people down in Victoria where there's a compulsory part of our curriculum saying we must learn about indigenous cultures and I'm saying that about is wrong it's got to be from because there is so much we don't know because we have lost over the last hundred uh, couple of hundred years in western culture how to memorise information and see these big pictures. We've lost that ability. We need to learn it desperately and very urgently. You spoke about uh, the connection to country and why that's significant. Again, when we look at um, the song lines for people travelling across desert, knowing where the waterholes were, where the kangaroos might be, where the tucker was, obviously served them well for a long time. Yes, absolutely. Matter of survival. I've been using those exact methods, well, what I can glimpse of them. I've got about 10 kilometres of Castlemaine now marked out as songlines. Lots, about over a thousand locations that I'm storing things like um, foreign languages, countries, history and so on. So I'm seeing how those methods would work really well. What I haven't got and can't get is the way that First Nations people can also look at the country and read it in more detail. I can associate information and find that it works astonishingly well. I can't read the country and I can't see any way of learning to do that. So it's more than just the song lines. Uh, There's so much more to learn, but at least I'm managing to convince people that we do need to learn and there is a lot to learn. Just coming back to this conversation of learning from the First Nations peoples and allowing them to be able to express it. The First Nations have developed different intellectual methods because they didn't have writing and they have gained so much intellectual knowledge in oral tradition. And Melbourne University is doing that. I'm involved with Dwayne Hamaker, who's just been appointed a professor there in ethnoastronomy in the science faculty to represent astronomy, learning from Australian Aboriginal, and he does a lot up in the Torres Strait as well, and bringing that astronomical knowledge into the science faculty there. And I've been invited down there to to do 
concessions on these memory methods because every university student will be better off if they know these methods. I just get so excited about this and how my world is alive now in a way it hasn't ever been before and I'm just so grateful for that. I just want to learn more. That was Lynn Kelly speaking with uh, Karma's Paul Wiles. We're going to be hearing soon from uh, Heather Scalthorpe, the head of the Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre, very soon. Before then, we're going to go to a quick song. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. We're going to head down to Tasmania now where uh, a recent bill that was introduced in Parliament has angered the uh, some of the local Aboriginal community there. I recently had an opportunity to sit down and speak with the uh, Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre's Chief Executive Officer, Heather Scalthorpe, who explains uh, what her concerns were about in regards to the new bill that was put forward. We spent a decade trying to uh, convince the then Labor Greens government that there should be an Aboriginal and dual naming policy for this state, as there was in every other state. So that finally happened, which was great. And uh, we went along with that for a few years, and then the uh, new Hodgman Liberal government kept that going for a small time. And then as part of it refresh uh, the relationship with Aborigines, it started to attack the Aboriginal community in all sorts of ways, including in relation to language and dual naming. And the end result of that is that after a phony review of the dual naming policy, they have set out um, new guidelines and new legislation the result of which uh, we now see this week is legislation that will uh, impose savage penalties on us if we use names for localities that are not the officially sanctioned state names. Um, So if we want to say, um, you know, Pillory, Cape Grimm, that that's not an official accepted name, we can be subject to fines and daily fines on top of it. So it's just a a huge, uh, we've called it, and it is, a cultural genocide. They're having another go at it. Uh, It's just a a ridiculous onslaught onto um, the Aboriginal community and Aboriginal history and culture. For for those of you who are unfamiliar, speak to us about the importance of having these dual names for the Aboriginal people there in Tasmania. We'd nearly lost all our language, I have to say. I mean, that's a pretty basic thing. We hadn't totally lost all our language, but there were only, a, uh, you know, a few words, not not that many. But as we went around about 30 years ago, we found that more uh, old people remembered words than they'd realised. So we embarked on a big process of community consultation all around the state to make sure that... Um, we were gathering all the words that were still in use, and then we worked with uh, linguists who were, you know, highly regarded linguists. We had uh, linguistic input and worked uh, for ages on getting a sound and spelling system to properly capture um, the sounds of our original languages, and we worked out principles for reviving our languages. I mean, there were were more than uh, one language in Tasmania, but there's no way there was enough words to revive every language that was here. So we did things uh, like decide that when it was uh, a few different words for one thing, like Mulapana, for instance, is uh, black, 
uh, we revive Mulapana, but there might be other words when it was uh, different words, we'd go for the northeast, where all our people came from originally. But we couldn't revive every single word. What we did, however, with place names was very scrupulously um, uh, find the word known in that and the area where that geographical feature was located. Um, so Kunanyi, uh, Mount Wellington, uh, that was used by the southern people for the mountain that oversees uh, Nipaluna, Hobart. So we didn't use a northeast word for that. But, you know, this pseudo-consultation that the Hodgman Liberal government went on about was if we were imposing false names. Because, you know, how it happens in community. Someone says, oh, no, I'm from the southeast, and that's not the word I know. Because they can look up an old word, you know, from the 1830s or something, when someone wrote down a word uh, in an English sort of way of spelling it. Uh, and uh, people then say, oh, no, that's my word. Um, so the government has deliberately played into this ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous and destructive uh, little, uh, you know, little power plays, whatever they're about, to undermine all the work that we've done over 30 years about um, refining our language and, and um, getting it into use. So that's the background of it. So um, it's going to be interesting times because, you know, it's been a while since we had our people dragged off to prison after standing up for our rights, but we're saying this is another one of them. If they're going to start mucking around with our heritage and our valuable language that we spent so long and so much effort uh, refinding, and now they're going to try and stop us using it, well, there's going to be a few of us who's going to get have to drag off uh, to prison to, to stop us continuing that process. Do you think moves like this and, and you know, the, how long it took for the, you know, the fight like you were talking about before in terms of getting these names and things like that shows that that there isn't that respect for the Aboriginal mob and, and community there in Tasmania from government? Absolutely no respect. Not any respect whatsoever. I mean, it is cultural genocide. It is a repeat of the attempt of the 1820s and 30s to get rid of all vestiges of our um, uh, ancient and traditional cultures. That's what's going on. They don't respect it. They're using us as a pawn in their power play uh, to get uh, votes in marginal electorates. So they're appeasing groups uh, who oppose us. They bring in legislation. They've abolished the nomenclature board. I mean, that board's been around since the... Um, 1940s. I mean, it might be a bit old-fashioned and probably is, but, you know, it's an old-fashioned way of doing things in Tasmania. And they were doing their best to, to accept these uh, changes that came in with a new policy of accepting the Aboriginal community's right to discuss and decide its own words for features. And they were accepting that. Uh, until the government now inter interfered, intervened, and they've got rid of the nomenclature board. And instead, they're going to have some advisory group and the final decision will be made by the minister. A political decision by a minister of the Crown about what it, words will be used for new places. It's not only us, but uh, 
the effect on us is more severe than, than on other people. Our message this is no longer to the government. Our message is to the other uh, members of Parliament, to to the uh, Labor Party, the Independents, and to the men- members of the Legislative Council. Do not let the Liberal government get away with this. Vote against this legislation. Toss it out and show Will Hodgman that the uh, Aboriginal community is prepared to stick up for itself and that the uh, members of Parliament will not stand by and let these further insults um, happen. That was uh, the... Chief Executive Officer of the Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre, Heather Scalthorpe there, sharing her thoughts on a bill put forward by the Hodgman Liberal Government. Uh, we're going to be going to a break now and then we'll be right back with the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from around the country. What's up? You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. <laughs> Well, now it's time for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from across the country uh, segment. I'm very happy to welcome into the studio, Carmen's Paul Wiles. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Carl, and good morning, listeners. Well, I understand you have a story this morning in regards to a royal visit. <laughs> uh, what can you tell us about that? <laughs> well, uh, of course, uh, His Royal Highness uh, Prince Edward, Earl of Wessex, is uh, visiting Central Australia, or he's visiting the Northern Territory as part of the uh, 60th anniversary royal tour for the Duke of Edinburgh's International Award Australia. Uh, uh, the uh, awards um, for many uh, First Nations peoples have been involved in the Duke of Edinburgh Awards and um, over uh, many, many years uh, it has uh, given young uh, First Nations peoples opportunities to travel and to uh, be part of a what is a, uh, a global activity uh, when we look at the the Commonwealth, the British Commonwealth, uh, obviously the um, Duke of Edinburgh Awards um, give First Nations young people in particular an opportunity to uh, come together and to meet and to uh, discuss global politics, among many things. But uh, anyway, uh, Prince Edward, uh, His Royal Highness Prince Edward this morning uh, is uh, visiting Urara College. And uh, I'm sure that for all the uh, students out at Urara, uh, they'll become part of... one of many visits over the years from the members of the royal family. Uh, Alice Springs has a a long connection to the British royal family and uh, we know that uh, um, the Queen in particular has a a strong connection uh, to uh, Aboriginal people and the First Nations peoples in Central Australia through the work of uh, artist uh, Albert Namajira and uh, her her fondness for uh, the work of Albert Namajira. But she's always um, kept an eye on what the mob are doing here. And um, likewise, with this particular visit, uh, Prince Edward, I think over the years we've had the Queen uh, with um, the Duke of Edinburgh. We had uh, Prince Charles, of course, has visited um, with uh, um, Lady Diana um, before um, she was tragically uh, died. Um and, of course, the, the young prince, um, um, Prince Edward. Um, but, uh, yeah, this morning out at Urara, I'm sure there will be lots of photographs and lots of vision. Do we know any other places he may be going around? Uh, Anzac Hill and I think one of um, one of the college... Um, no, I got the wrong... Oh, here we go. Uh, Urara... 
and does it say the other Anzac Hill definitely um, mm. yeah and uh, Anzac Hill you are in Anzac Hill but then he's going to Darwin so he'll be catching up with the Yongle Matter mob uh, talking hopefully to learn some language and kick a football so we told <laughs> well but, thanks for joining us for the news Paul uh, we're going to have to wrap it up there unfortunately thank you so much for tuning in today thanks to all our guests who, who joined us on the program as well and thank you all for tuning in this morning uh, that's going to conclude Strong Voices if you missed any stories and wanted to listen back to the program we'll be posting up those and putting up a podcast of the episode today up on our SoundCloud that's all for us we'll be back tomorrow Strong Voices Richard Eckert Time